happening, everybody? Welcome to episode five of the Carbide Podcast with Team Southside's Bruce Gasparti Jr. Thanks for tuning in. Bruce and his family have played a huge role in not only developing successful riders and talent over the years, but also helping to propel the sport of snowcross to greater heights. Bruce also has some really cool sponsorship programs in the works for the 2024 season for anybody racing in Scandinavia. He gets into that towards the end of the episode, so be sure to stick around to hear that. With that said, please enjoy our discussion. And welcome back, everybody, to episode five of the Carbide Podcast. On today's episode, I have a longtime Eastern Snowcross racing veteran. He's a team manager for Southside Polaris, Mr. Bruce Gasparti Jr. How are we doing, Bruce? Good, Spencer. How are you guys doing? We're good, man. We're good. I'm just, I'm dreaming of snow at this point in time. Got heydays in a couple months and it's been cold a couple days. So hopefully we get some, some good snow this year. Yeah, no, this, uh, this past winter was a little rough for you guys here. I, I had a better winter than you did over overseas, but, uh, gotta say it felt weird when you said I was a snow cross veteran, never, <laughs> never really considered. I never really put that word after whatever I was. So that was, that's a, that's a first. Uh, but yeah, no, happy to be here. Happy to chat with you. I was, I was trying to look back at some of your career history, Bruce. And I'm like, you know, he's won a lot of championships. So do I call him like an all timer? Do I call him like a savvy veteran? What, what should I call him? And that's what I came up with. All right. That works. Yeah. Sa- savvy. That's they rate. I always tried to race smarter, not harder all the time. Oh, there you go. There you go. So let's jump into this, Bruce, because your family has played a pivotal role in snowmobiling and snowmobile racing on the East coast for a long time, but for your family roots in snowmobiling, where did it really start for you guys? Where does the Gaspardi name and snowmobiling start? So my, uh, my grandfather, Francis Gaspardi, he started uh cell side sales and service in 1969 as a part-time gig because he was a, he was a pipe fitter by trade and he he worked on a couple of big projects near us we have a um we have a hydro uh hydroelectric dam that he worked on and then we have um yankee row which is a pressurized water nuclear reactor power station so he did a a lot of work in those two projects over a lot of years but in his quote unquote off time he started cell side in a chicken barn on the back road in town selling truck cap truck caps and wood stoves and then soon after that, he picked up Massey Ferguson, which at the time was selling lawnmowers and snowmobiles. So that's that's where snowmobiling started for our family. It's it's interesting for a lot of people back then when it first, you know, when those brands first came in and when BRP first came down, I think their first uh, dealership was in Pittsburgh. But for a lot of these people, sleds weren't, it wasn't a leisure activity yet. It was just a tool. So it was a lot of these guys that were doing agriculture or small engine repair that brought in snowmobiles. So it sounds like your grandfather was, was very much the same. Yeah. So like in the, by the time the late sixties, early seventies rolled around, you had over 120 different snowmobile manufacturers Mm -hmm. across the world. Everybody Mm -hmm. and their brother decided to make snowmobile. I mean, you had Suzuki, probably Davidson, Coleman camping products, Mallard campers, uh, Johnson, Evan Rude, Mercury, all the boat guys jumped into it. I mean, just literally everybody and their brother wanted to try to make snowmobile. And, um, 
and yeah, Massey Ferguson was no different. You know, they were making tractors and they said, well, let's make a snowmobile too. And, uh, they went at it and it was, it was, you know, there was six, seven years where it was just, there was brands that they would sell in Minnesota and Wisconsin that never even made it to the East coast because they, they, they did it for a couple of years and then they went out of business before it ever even crossed, you know, crossed over into the Northeast. So no, it's uh, it's quite a rich history when you do some, when you do a nice deep dive on, on snowmobiling and where it came from to where it is now. And, you know, we had 125 brands and now, you know, after 2025, we'll be down to basically four brands. So yeah, no, it's uh, it is, it's super fascinating. And uh, you know, the different brands, with their, you know, everything had their different look, but you know, a bunch of them, most all of them had all the same engines, you know, they were Sax mm -hmm. engines or stuff like that. It was all, it was all the same thing, but the, you know, the body and everything was different. And, uh, yeah, I have a, right now I've got a collection of, a, have got 125 vintage snowmobiles in storage right now. Do you really? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, let's have to shut the window here. I've got, We've got like 70 mile an hour winds and rain coming in right now. Mm. Um, yeah, I've got 125 sleds in storage. I've whittled that down. It was like just over 200. So I've, <sighs> I, got, I got rid of a bunch of the stuff that was quote, you know, too much of a project to get to. Mm -hmm. um, but I've got, I, and you know, the more oddball, the better, you know, I've got, I've got a blade in there. I've got some Bull stuff from Sweden. I've got like a 95, Lynx race sled with 40 kilometers on it. Oh, it's sick. You know, I've got a bunch of the, um, you know, the, the tow behind sleighs from like, mm -hmm. um, I've got a Polaris one. I've got a sled dog one that was, um, oh, whose was it? It'll come to me. But uh, I've got Boland's Diablo Rouges. I have like four of those. I've got some Raiders, um, you know, obviously some Massey stuff. Got to have mm -hmm. that some Polaris triples, all original and some restored stuff. Um, Northways, Mercury's. Uh, yeah, I've got a 1970 snow coupe, which those things are epic. So if you, if you uh -huh. don't know what you look like, you need to Google them because it looks Beautiful. like something out of the Jetsons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, I've got, I've got quite the collection of that stuff. Well, I could honestly sit here and talk vintage with you all day, but I, but I won't, I'll spare the rest of the, the listeners, but right. it's very, it's very clear that, you know, your passion for sleds has continued on and, and into your adult life. But when did you first get on a sled as a, as a child? So I was, so basically I was right around when I turned three, I got a kitty cat and that was kind of my first forte in the snowmobiling. And it was a lot of home videos of just me driving in a straight line and smashing into the pool fence. And then my dad chasing after me, spinning me around and me driving straight into some other solid object. Uh, but then I, I got the hang of it and uh, I started racing. I think the, when I turned four, I started racing kitty cats. And, um, you know, back then there was no, you know, 200 freestyles or transition classes. So mm -hmm. I had to race a kitty cat until I turned 10 and I could get out of, get on a 340. But I, uh, I grass drag raced and snow cross raced kitty cats. I had a stalker and a mod. Yeah. You had a mod kitty cat? Mod kitty cat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. At, at that point in time, was it was it you initiating racing or was your dad already into it at that point in time? So he, he did it back when he was a kid. You know, he started doing some snow cross racing and some ice racing back in like 72, 73. And then... 
got on some Massey, did some racing on Massey stuff in like 76 and 77 with like the Massey Chinook 340 and the Massey Storm 440. Mm -hmm. And then late 80s, he had just taken on Polaris as a brand at the shop. And because um, he took over the business in 84 mm -hmm. and then took on Polaris a couple years after that. And so he was grass dragging in the late 80s. And then he started snowcross racing again in the early 90s with, you know, the, uh, the Indy chassis. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, it sounds like kind of you got started early and it was a, it was a family effort for you guys and you hung on to it for a long time. I mean, you, I mean, you're still racing now, Bruce, but you know, what was your progression like through the ranks in your career as a, as a whole? It, uh, it was, it was slow and steady. It, uh, <laughs> you know, um, and we, when I first started racing, uh, my dad was crew chief for team 99, which was the, kind of the factory Polaris team out here in the East. You know, they had the, the Lazinski brothers, Matt and Chad, and uh, the owner's son, Dougie DeCoin Jr., and a couple other solid riders. Um, so, and my dad was crew chief there. And so he, he crew chiefed on that team. And then in the, uh, I think it was like right around like 97 or so, he started doing the the factory track side support. So basically mm -hmm. he, he would tow like a 30-foot tag trailer to all the races in the East with basically every part you could possibly need for a Polaris. And if you broke something, you came and saw him and he helped you finish the weekend kind of thing. So, so we did that. And then I started racing, a a three, four, a three forty. That was like, I don't know, like the 99 season, maybe 98, 99 season. Mm -hmm. And, um, for team 99. And then in 01, 01 was their last year as the Polaris team out here um they uh they went to they went to winter x games in 01 and, which was still in vermont at the time mm -hmm. and we got a we ended up with a bronze medal in hill in hillcross with matt lazinski he actually he was a he was a junior in high school he had to skip school to go <laughs> up to mount snow which was like 45 minutes from us and he ended mm -hmm. up getting a bronze medal behind uh, carl cooster and somebody else but he beat he beat a lot of the big wigs you know the Zalin. What was it Zollinger's and Dennis Dermis and you know there was a bunch of good guys there and he got on the box so that was that was super cool and then later in that season um Polaris had sent my dad it was a um it was one of the very first VS 800 engines oh really um because they weren't in a trail sled yet they were mm -hmm. they were only in a mountain sled so he they sent him one in a crate and he stuffed it in he, and he put it in one of the race chassis and they went to one of the last races with it and um uh chad lazinski was running it he got the whole shot you know he was couldn't even hear the sled run on the line you know it was because it just had a it had a slp single pipe on it and everybody else had you know 800 twin pipes so you couldn't even hear it running but he was the first one to the top of the hill and he led every lap of that final and won so that was kind of but that was kind of the send-off for uh them on a polaris because the following year they showed up i think they went to Articat before Articat and then Skidoo. So there was a void to kind of be filled out here in the East. And so that's kind of when Team Cellside was created was for the 2002 season. We had four riders. We had Russ Katzenberger in pro, had Johnny Gerstel in semi-pro, which is pro light now, mm -hmm. uh, Rich Labby in sport, and then I was the junior rider. And so that was that was our first season as a team was 2002. 
So at that point in time, Bruce, you're pretty much carrying the weight of the whole team, right? As as a junior rider, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. No, that was that was so cool because, you know, to go from you know, to go from being on somebody else's team to now you having your own team and you know, it was always you know, ever from oh two on, it was always it was always team Southside. It was never like Gasparti Motorsports. I never mm-hmm. I never wanted to be that center of attention. I always wanted to well, and dad too. We always wanted to help other people and elevate the uh, elevate the people around us. And, um, you know, that was always the goal, you know, and, you know, you know, we didn't matter what year it was, you know, I wanted to help my friend out or let's, let's bring in this person or that person or these people. And dad's like, no, we got enough. We got enough. And, you know, I'm like, no, we need one more. And, you know, it was, you know, so it, you know, a couple, a few more than a few years. It was so big to the point where he barely even had time to watch me race. He was so busy working on, you know, seven other riders' stuff that you know he, I'd have somebody else come to the starting line with me. And but it was my fault. You know, I was the one trying to rope everyone in. Um, but yeah, the first first few years, it was it was slow going. I mean, the, the sled was meh. You know that 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 ed, edge and then kind of be the pro and yeah, then became the pro x pro xr it was it was a okay sled at best but the uh the first year we had a lot of real success was that 0405 season you know the first year of the iqr 440 mm-hmm. you know we had we had six riders counting myself in 10 classes and that season we won nine of the 10, nine championships out of the 10 classes and finished second in the 10th class. Mm. And that was kind of like, like the don't look back point. Like it was just kind of like all uphill from there that that sled just changed everything. It was just, yeah, it was incredible. And it was also a very different time period in the, in the growth of the sport as a whole. Uh, it hasn't hasn't been posted yet, but I just did an episode with uh, with Phil Whipple talking about some of those old RMR years, and oh, you know that's the, cool. I miss Phil. Yeah, the the funding was was very different. The exposure for the sport was very different. We were still on TV and things like this, so you know the the growth trajectory prior to 08 was a lot bigger. So I would imagine for you guys attracting riders and like just kind of the overall outlook and like almost like the five-year plan of the team at that period of time was probably pretty grand and a lot more exciting yeah i mean it was well it was just you know it was different because i mean you know at at least up until 05 you know you could kind of show up on a trail sled and compete Mm -hmm. you know the, the the pro xr was nothing special as far as a race sled was concerned you know the it had trailing arms just like the just like the sleds in the showroom and mm-hmm. you know and and it had really 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 stiff shocks that did not move those first couple of years and so i mean you know you, you had those those local yokels those trail guys they could show up and run a sport class and be competitive mm-hmm. where you know shortly that shortly after 05 that all kind of went away you know with the you know obviously rev had, rev had been out for a few years already but, you know, when the IQR came around and, you know, it just, yeah, everything changed. You know, the, the jump started getting a lot bigger. The hole started getting a lot deeper. And that, that gap, that difference between what a trail sled was compared to what a race sled was, it just, yeah, it just started getting further and further apart to the point of where, 
you know, that local guy couldn't just show up to the race with his, with his trail sled and be competitive. It was, it was no longer fun for that person anymore. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, you know, I didn't start racing until I was like 17. So this was like 2012, but growing up, I always wanted to race because I had like an MXZ 380 as like a 10 year old. And at that point in time, that's what all the kids my age were racing was MXZ 380s. And it just looks mm -hmm. so, looks so obtainable. And then you come at it a couple years later and you're like, oh, I have to buy a race sled. Like I have to buy a dedicated <laughs> race sled to get into this sport. It barrier of entry certainly becomes pretty different at that point in time. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like, you know, Oh four, Oh five, Oh six, you know, I, I won some, some junior and sport fan championships on like an Oh four pro X five fifty, which was a trail sled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wasn't long after that you, you couldn't do that anymore. You, you show up with that sled, you're going to get smoked. <laughs> so it, um, yeah, it did. It, you know, it just changed. Then those people started racing cross country. They started doing ice stuff. They started doing other things because yeah, buying a, spending the money on a, on a dedicated snow cross sled wasn't feasible for plenty of people. So you guys kind of carried the flag for Polaris's East coast efforts for, I mean, 20 years or so at that point in time. And, you know, I put a note in here. It was, it was pretty much like you guys and and Holton Speed Sports when when Danny was on there and then Corin was on there for a year. But between you guys, you probably won pretty much every championship for Polaris in like a twenty year span, whether it was RMR or ECS. Yeah, that's a pretty safe bet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Holton had they did they had Danny for a lot of years, and oh my god, he he did a lot of winning. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of when he did a lot of winning on Skidoo bef before that. They did plenty of winning on the Polaris when he switched over. And then, you know, they had the Settle Mile brothers of, uh, I think it was Tyler and Adam. And then, yeah, Corinne was on that team for a year. Yeah, no, between the two of us, yeah, we, we did. We had the Polaris stuff on lockdown for a long time out here. At, at one point in time, because frankly, I don't know when it started, so that's what I'm interested in. But, you know, you guys were running polaris's quote-unquote factory atv motocross team in the in the summertime as well this was like peak sport quad market they were pushing the outlaw heavily the 450 when did that discussion start to, to get involved on the atv side in the summertime um well i, I had wanted to race atvs for a long time growing up because growing up in the summertime me and my dad used to race go-karts uh, we'd race oval oval go-karts and that was a lot of fun, but I always, always had the itch for ATV racing and just, just never, never could do it or wasn't really old enough either. Cause you know, to ride a 450, you have to be, I think 16 years old. That's kind of, and so that was kind of the rule everybody followed. So it wasn't a, it wasn't attainable for a while because I did not want to ride a mini quad or, or something like that. So, uh, I had bought in 2007, I had bought a, uh, Cowie had just come out with like the KFX 450R race quad. And I ended up getting, I got one of those and, uh, did a couple of little races with it, nothing much. And then that fall, I ended up <laughs> trying to, uh, hit a freestyle ramp with it up at, uh, Acker's house in Vermont and lacerated my liver and spleen and spent like, spent a week in the hospital and four months hanging around the house. Um, but it was, it was that, it was that off season, that winter when the, uh, cause the outlaw was released just after I got hurt. <laughs> And it was going to have the new, it had the uh, KTM 450 in it. 
mm-hmm. and uh, it looked it did it looked sick. And so we had uh, we talked to Polaris and we said, you know, we'd like to do this out here. And so we we put together we had a five rider team that first year. We had, or sorry, no, we had more than that. So it, yeah, we always had a lot. Didn't matter if it was wheels or tracks. We had a lot. <laughs> We had, because um, there was two series out here, because Rock Maple, which was the Snowcross series, they had a quad series, and then you had New England ATV, which was like the bigger quad series. Mm-hmm. And so we had we had signed a, a pro veteran, Matt Pomeroy. He had been around a long time. He, he had won the pro championship in like 04 or 05. He was solid. And he was pumped to, to ride something new. So he was our pro, and then we had, uh, we brought over, Dave Livingston, Derek Graham from Snowcross Racing. You know, they had never raced quads before. They'd just been Snowcross guys, but they were talented on the snow. So we had them. We had myself. Uh, Brett Bender decided wanted to do it a little bit. So he raced just the Rock Maple side of it. And then um, one of our f- friends, Petra Lindborg from Sweden, she came over and spent the summer here racing quads. So that was our that was our first season of quad racing and that with the Polaris season. You know, it was it was really totally separate from the snow the snow side of things because snow had their own. You know, obviously, and they still do. They have their own race department, which Tom Raker mm-hmm. Jr. currently runs. His dad used to run it before him. But with the quad side of things, it most I mean, they kind of had they had a guy that wore the race director hat, but most all of it was just ran out of the marketing division, marketing mm-hmm. department. So it was it was tough sledding to make things happen and and do things and make changes and you know, get cooperation for lack of a better term, just because, you know, you had, you didn't have race people, you had, you had marketing people. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was, it was very different and it was very, you know, very difficult per se to deal with. And, but we stuck with it for a long time. We raced quads from, so from 2008 through 2017 was the last year we raced quads and, and every year and all those years we were on the outlaw, even though they stopped making the outlaw in 2010, we still mm-hmm. raced them till 2017. Cause it was, it was a, it was a really good quad and, and boy, people hated getting beat by a Polaris. It was like, it was, it was like when Yamaha showed up to a snowcross race and you got mm-hmm. beat by one and you just, you just wanted to pack up your stuff and leave. And for whatever reason, the Polaris outlaw made quad people feel the same way. They would, they didn't, they could get beat by anything else, but they did not want to get beat by a, by a Polaris outlaw. <laughs> It's kind of like the, I mean, similar to Yamaha there, it's, it's kind of like the outlier. Like it's in within the within that specific segment, Polaris hasn't played for a long time and only had like a kind of like a brief window where they were really in it. So I'm sure for a lot of people, it's like, ah, these, they made a quad, but they're, but they're not us. You know what I mean? I'm sure yeah, that was like, kind of no, their thought process. Like they, they call them lawnmowers. They call them couches. They, you know, this, all kinds of stuff. And it's like, most of the people never even rode one. Never mind, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, never mind raced one. How, how do you guys know? All I know is we're beating you every weekend with them. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you guys, you guys crushed it on the ATV side for a long time. I mean, you had a yeah. lot of really talented riders and you, you won a lot of championships. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we had uh, we had a year. I think it was like two thousand and I think it was twenty ten. We ran ten classes. We won seven championships and finished second and third in the other three classes. I mean, we just it didn't. Yeah, it didn't matter who we put on the quad. It just went fast. And um, I remember this this one one season we had Cody Payoella. Mm-hmm. You know, we had picked him up. We had picked him up and. Um, 
in the C classes the year before, you know, a friend of a friend said, Hey, you know, cause I had, we had a couple of spare quads cause people got hurt or whatever. And one of my friends was like, Hey, you know, this kid, he's, he's 15. And back then you could be 15 and race a 450 in C class. And it's like, you know, he's running on a, like a 400 EX or something. And, you know, I think he could do really good on one of your, one of your quads. And, you know, it's like, Oh, we've got a spare one. If he wants to try it, we can let him try it. And Cody went out there and just like, dominated on it in the c class it's like who is this kid and um so he won that he won the c championship on it that year and then he he moves to the b classes the next year for us and picks up right where he left off starts winning 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 and you know back then the players outlaw you could get it in two engines you could get it in a 450 or a 525 mm -hmm. and from the outside they looked identical you know the only difference was the was the hole in the, in the center of the cylinder piston size. Mm -hmm. That was the only difference. Everything else looked identical. And, you know, he, he was in a pretty tight, there was two other kids in the B class that could kind of hang with them on good, on their good days. And, you know, one of them was on a Can-Am and he was just pouring money into this Can-Am to try to make it go faster because Can-Am was paying contingency back then. So mm -hmm. it was, it was worthwhile if you could win on it. And Cody just kept winning. And so finally, you know, we're, we're deep into the season and there's, there's been rumblings all season that, you know, all oh, we're cheating. It's a five, two, five, we're going to tear them down this, that, the other thing. And so finally we're down in, we're in hurricane Hills down in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, we had heard rumblings on Saturday during practice that, you know, all you know, they're going to, they're going to tear you guys down this week and they're going to, they're going to protest and a, and a protest wasn't cheap. It was like $500 cash you had to put up to tear somebody down. It wasn't a joke. And, um, cause I mean, with a quad too, I mean, you know, you got the can't, you gotta, you have to break the cam chain and you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not easy to pull a, pull a quad engine apart. Mm -hmm. It takes time and it takes the right person to do it. So, you know, so Sunday morning rolls around and he goes out and he wins the first, you know, he was running two classes. So we run, he won both motos in the morning. And then after lunch, the rumblings are getting louder and, uh, he goes out there and, you know, cause it was. You know, they, they're, they're talking as, oh, you know, we got 60 horsepower in that Can-Am. And, you know, how you guys get into the first, how, you know, you, you know, your 450 can't get to the first, you, you know, you can't beat us. You can't keep hole shotting us like this. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, it's just, it's, it's fast. It's balanced. You know, you know, we got, we're running gold speed tires from Europe that hooked up awesome. And Cody was just a phenomenal rider. And, uh, and Hurricane had, um, it was a slightly uphill start to the first turn. And then it kind of got like a steep, short, steep incline to turn two and, that third moto, he went out there and he got the whole shot and he won again. And then that was that. As soon as that moto was over, the official was walking over to us saying, you know, you know, you know, you're being protested. You know, you, you know, we, this quad can't be out of sight at any point in time. And then, and then once he races his last moto, you got to tear it apart. Okay. And so we, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Cody won that last moto too, just, just because. And then, uh, you know, day's done we're getting ready to tear it down. And I mean, the people are this, this, this crowd is forming. Like, this is like, it's like a shin, it's like a Friday night shindig in a small town. Everybody's, everybody's showing up with their golf carts and their beer coolers and the kids. And this, it's like, they want to see what's going to happen. Like, is, is, mm -hmm. is this, is this finally going to be the day that Polaris is in Southside is done or, or what? And, um, you know, it, it came out later that, you know, one of the, one of the, um, what would you call it? One of the pit tough guys had gone around basically with a hat and took donations <laughs> to, 
to they pooled money to to get us torn down that day and so there was you know people were packing their trailers up but nobody was leaving they were all sitting on the grandstands next to us sitting around i mean there was there was more people getting ready to watch us get that motor torn apart than there was people watching the pro moto that day <laughs> and uh, so my dad runs up runs up to the uh, concession stand grabs an ice cream before he starts and he did he pulled it apart and they had one of the engine one of the official engine builders there you know once dad pulled it apart the guy looked in there he measured it 450 and you know everything the, the air was just sucked out of the entire crowd of people they're like oh and it's like oh my god it was it was it was one of the best days because it's just like yep yeah, nope it's just cody in that quad you know find some more go find some more horsepower <laughs> oh god yeah you guys had a you had a lot of talent there on the on the atv side and then it became like at least when i started there was a ton of crossover you were bringing a lot of your atv guys onto the onto the snow in the winter i mean cody had his own you know many championships on the snow as well but you know uh andy cummings was in there mike p lot of course another successful guy i did an episode with uh with kyle sackett we talked about travis moore like a lot of these guys you were bringing over to snow and they were frankly having just as much if not more success on the snow yeah it was it was crazy i mean obviously everybody we brought over was you know naturally talented but uh, you know the um you know forever in snowcross you know people's like oh you know dirt bike dirt bike guys are the perfect guys to bring over and this and that and you know and you know dirt bike racing does obviously have a much deeper and wider pool of talent you know you go to a dirt bike you know there's far more dirt bike racers than there are atv racers but i just you know truly felt and believed that the the way you ride a race quad is so similar to the way you ride a race sled you know whether you know the way it flies the way you have to you know the way you lean and you're cornering with it the way you're shifting your body weight around just the way it reacts there's just there were in my opinion there's just so many similarities that truly if you can ride one you can probably ride the other one pretty well and we did you know we brought we brought cody over after he won the sea championships and that that winter we're like hey you want to ride a snowmobile and he had never even rode one before mm. and you know the we go to the first race of the season i think it was up in like up like burke mountain in vermont yep. and he mm -hmm. you know he fell off like two three times you know finished deep in the field you know 40 you know 30 40 seconds behind the leader and then by the end of the season he was winning every final and winning by 15 or 20 seconds and won the championships and then that's that summary won the b championships and quads and then he went back to sleds and uh won a won a sport championship in the sleds and then he went to a class in the quads won an a championship and then he went to pro light on a sled won one i don't know if it was his first year but he definitely he won a pro light championship the first or second year on a sled um, in the class then he goes back to quads runs pro class finishes uh i think we finished second his rookie year and then he won the next two years in pro class on quads goes to pro and sleds finishes runner-up it was i mean he got on the you know one of the years he ran sport Selmanka got on the box with like uh with uh, yerk won the final and cody was second or third mm -hmm. and um you know and then yeah no he was he was just beyond talented it was it was so much fun to work with him and his family and and yeah, the way he, the way he rode and, you know, I remember, I remember when he was racing pro class for the quads, 
you know, forever, it was an open, it was an open class, you know, you could literally run whatever, whatever size engine you wanted it as long as it was, a, as long as it was a production base engine, basically, you could run as big of a piston as you wanted. Mm-hmm. And um, there was only one year, I think it was like 09 or 10, where like Can-Am forced it to be a 450 class, because their things, their 450 grenaded. So mm-hmm. if you tried to make it bigger, it was just going to grenade faster. So they, if they wanted to have pro contingency, there had to be a 450 only class. So that was like one year, but like the other 14 years, it was open class. And um, Cody's dad, and then one of the other dads on our team, uh, Neil Dupont, has his son Ryan, mm-hmm. who also raced, ended up racing sleds for us later on, still does. Um, they they put together this 570 big bore kit, and it was just it was a rocket ship. You know, it was a it was a pure rocket ship. You know, the the Hondas couldn't touch it. Nothing could touch it. And uh, Cody won the championship that year. And after we won the championship, everybody voted to make the class a 450 class the next year to get rid of our 570s. And uh, so Cody's like, I'm done. I'm 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 retiring. I'm I'm over this. So he just he raced sleds that winter for us. And then it was like two weeks before the quad season was starting. I don't know if he called me or texted me, and he's like, ah. Oh, you know, you still got the race quad sitting around? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you know, you know, why don't we do the first one? <laughs> and, you know, hadn't touched, I haven't, I hadn't, we hadn't touched his quad, you know, still the 570 and we hadn't touched it since he finished, you know, last October. Mm-hmm. So we had like 11 days to, to try to get this thing back to a 450 and get it running decent. And uh, we go to the first race in, uh, I think we were in English town in New Jersey. 450 class 450 only he goes out and he wins <laughs> and we did the rest of the season and he won the championship again as a 450 it was like no clearly engine sized was not the, was not the problem guys <laughs> yeah that, i remember seeing that that stuff on social when he when he he didn't like come off the couch but you know he kind of came back in it kind of yeah, at, yeah. at, at last minute and i was like that just solidified it to me because like my my first year racing was was cody's first year racing we both raced 16 17 and i i couldn't touch him you know him and him and zach roberts those dudes were just on another level that year but like watching his progression all throughout the years and then him coming out to to win another atv title like that dude is just raw talent you could put him on anything and he could win on anything yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was so much fun working with him and his dad, Bob, and the whole family. It was, it was, it was so much fun. But you no, know, yeah, we we brought him from quads. Ryan Dupont came from quads and won a sport championship, and he's been running pro light the last few years. And Andy Cummings won a junior championship. Kelly Moran came, and she, I think, she got second in the, in the women's class and the girls class. And uh, Jared Gessner won a sport championship and a pro light championship. Travis Moore from Tennessee, never even really seen a whole lot of snow before. He, you know, he got some sport podiums and he had a blast doing it. And then, you know, you had brought up Pilot. Pilot had a ton of success on a sled. Mm-hmm. You know, the the way we even ended up with him on the team was was bizarre. Um, we were up because he, he started racing sleds for somebody else. And I don't really know how he got hooked up with that guy. I don't remember mm-hmm. if he was, the guy was racing some quad stuff and then, they became buddy buddy or whatnot, but his first season on sleds, he was riding for this Polaris team called Toxic Racing or Toxic. Oh, Motorsport. okay, yep, yep, okay. And um, it was him, and then he was in sport class, and then they had Jacob. They had Jacob Muller and 
and semi pro pro light. And then they had a couple of the coke. They had their cut their own kids in the junior classes. And I don't know, we get like four or five races into the end of the season. And we're up in, um, we're up in Maribel up in, uh, Canada, just North of Montreal. And we're, it was a, uh, SCM, you know, ECS combo race. And, uh, um, something happened on Saturday. Like I think Muller was doing pretty cause Muller was the points leader in, in semi-pro. He was doing really good. He was, you know, he was a kind of a nobody random guy and from, you know, Minnesota or something. And he, uh, toxic picked him up to bring him out here and run, run semi-pro. And he was a solid driver. He was, he was good. No question. And he was leading the points at that point. And uh, he broke the sled Saturday night in the final or something. And there was a, there was a, you know, the, the, the team owner went off the handle and was kicking the sled and yelling and screaming. And so Jake, Jake and Mike both said, well, we, we quit. We're done. <laughs> We're leaving. So Sunday morning, I'm going out for practice and I see Muller and Pilot standing there in street clothes next to the track. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like we quit last night. I'm like, go over the trailer. And so I finished practice and I bring them in the trailer. And so it was, it was them and my dad and we're talking and we're like, you know, you know, Pila was doing good in sport. Muller was points leader in, in semi-pro and we're like, you know, and we had, and we had, a, we had a spare sled sitting there because our semi-pro rider was Dale Petrus and he got hurt mm. the Thursday before the race at work and broke his thumb. So he was done. So we our 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 semi our main semi pro gun was out for the season, so we but we had a sled there with us, and um, by this time Muller had already missed the qualifying round for Sunday morning for semi pro, because up in Canada they only ran they ran one qualifier and then final. Where obviously down here we always ran two heats and two qualifiers in a final, and um, there and there was an LCQ that day and we're like you know, cause he didn't know if he wanted to race anymore and, and whatnot. And I'm basically like, you know, Jake, you know, rate, you know, run Dale's sled today, you know, get some points. You'll probably be the points leader when you leave here. And then you got two weeks to decide if you want to, you know, race for us the rest of the season, or if you want to go home. But if you don't race today, your season's over. So he's like, okay, all right, let's do it. So he suited up really quick, threw him on Dale's sled and ran him up to the line for the LCQ. And you know, everybody's flipping out because, oh, he didn't run the qualifier. He can't run the LCQ. But, you know, up there in Canada, since you only had one qualifier, their rule was oh, okay. you could still run the LCQ because they only, you mm -hmm. know, if your sled broke in practice and you missed your qualifier, you could still run mm -hmm. the LCQ because there's only one qualifier. So he goes out and he whole shots the LCQ and wins it on Dale's sled. Gets into the final and then he, I think he finished fifth in the final. And we ended up, we went, we, he went on to win the semi-pro championship that winter on our sled, but, it, and, and Pila, I'm pretty sure Pila won, mm. won the sport championship that year too. And it was just, and it was all because up there, they had a big blowout. They quit the, the toxic team and came and ended up on our sleds and we won two championships. Kind of it. <laughs> it's that, uh, so I wasn't, I wasn't around when that, I wasn't racing when that blowout happened, but super funny story that like that incident has kind of transcended that time because i grew up with uh like uh brent royer and his dad uh mm -hmm. bernie those guys mm -hmm. longtime racers and our families were friends and i remember first time i started racing brent had this super trick set up with his dolly because his dad owned a, a tire shop 
and he had like these trailer yeah, yeah. tires on his dolly and he's like oh yeah we got that when we were up in quebec the toxic guys just took off and left a bunch of crap in the parking lot and one of the things they left was there was their dolly like it broke when they were loading the sleds in all pissed off so the tire fell off so they just left it there and then the royers took it and turned it into a trick dolly so yeah pretty pretty funny all the things that transpired from that from that blow up oh my god yeah no it was it was that was something and, and, and yeah and then you know muller came back the following year ran pro for us and and then pilot pilot ran for us a bunch of years and um in sleds in pro you know pro light champion ran pro yeah no he's yeah, super talented yeah but yeah and, yeah so it, it didn't matter which way we went we brought we, you know we brought all those guys from from sleds to, to from quads to sleds and they all had a lot of success and we brought plenty of guys from sleds over to quads whether it was dave livingston joey stock eddie bandell you know eddie bandell never oh, yeah. raced a quad before you know, but he was good on a sled. We threw him on a on a race quad. He won some won some C class races. We go to Unadilla for the national, and he he wins the Unadilla national in C class on a quad, like just like out of the blue, like oh hey, like yeah, no, it was it was, and then you know that that in 08 getting a race with Bender, that was always that was a lot of fun. It was cool to see him on a quad and 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 hang out with him. That was something special for sure. Yeah, I had I had kind of forgotten about uh, Eddie Bandel, but I want like another one of those kind of like what if type guys. Like if he didn't mm. if he didn't get hurt, like what what could he have really done if his if he stuck with it in in his snowcross career? Yeah, no, it was he was he was he was really talented and he had a lot of he had a, he had a the season he got hurt he you know him and Pilot were were first and second off a lot in semi pro that year and yeah it was it was super disappointing when he got hurt that year. So you guys stuck around, won a lot of championships out east. That was kind of like your your main base when the series was extremely strong. We saw you guys race Duluth like any like anybody did, you know, first race of the year. So everybody <laughs> raced Duluth. Yeah. And then if if the if the calendars didn't, you know, didn't overlap, you guys would race Canterbury and then do uh Salamanca when it was a crossover, but you guys were still heavily based racing out east when did you kind of switch your mindset of let's start to put a little more emphasis on the national tour as much as we can? Um, <clears throat> I would say probably, I don't know if it was 20, 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. Um, we had picked up, um, Elena Omen mm -hmm. to come race pro women's for us. And she ran the nationals, um, couple of years for us got a couple of wins a ton of podiums just super talented young lady and um so kind of dabbled in it with her and then um i think it was the it was for the 2017 2018 season we had picked up a big sponsor to run the nationals and then at the last minute it fell through but we still we still raced out there but it cost us a lot more than it should have <laughs> but uh we had we had put together a really good team you know we had um had Christopher Holm in pro open who had, he'd raced for us at Duluth a bunch of times previous to that. And then he ran, he lived with me all winter in 20, 2017 and won the East, East, East coast snowcross pro championship out here. And then gave him the shot to run pro at the nationals for the winter. And then we had, um, we had Oscar Norum and Victor Hurton come over and run pro light. 
we had Amelia Dahlgren in pro women's along with uh, Kylie Fasenot, who was a, a pro motocross, pro motocrosser. She had won the national championship three, I think three times on a bike, mm-hmm. just super talented and wanted to see what she could do on a snowmobile. And then we had the, uh, the Hazanacks who lived out in uh, Wyoming, Brody and juniors and Riley and, in pro women's and uh yeah no it was it was a super talented lineup but that was a that was a tough season because the uh the arctic cats fuel injected sled yeah. was just next level and it didn't didn't seem to matter what you were on if you weren't on an arctic cat you weren't going to win because you know every every players team and skew team was having having trouble getting on the box because the green sleds were just it, it did it took a took a good rider and made him great and it took a great rider and made him like unstoppable yeah, it. Uh, I remember the 2017, the the 16, 17 was my last year racing, and that 17 year, the cats were garbage. First year fuel injection, dudes couldn't do anything. I think, like Montana Jess was running his carb sled for half the year. Tuck, right. Tuck, Tucker that. was running his carb sled because the maps weren't there and everything like that. And by the end of the year, you started to see it kind of come together, and then that next year they just couldn't be touched. They were just gone. It was it was it was wild to see. And you knew Polaris and BRP were, were sweating a little bit like, all right, we gotta, we gotta come up with something ASAP. Yeah, it was, it was, that was, that was such a tough winter. Cause I mean, you know, those guys, Oscar, Oscar, Victor, every, you know, they were all so talented and it just, you know, it just, you could only do so much with the sled and it just was not enough to be competitive against the green sleds. It just, you know, it was, they were in a class of their own. <laughs> it was, it was, it was tough. But, you know, but obviously now you can, you can see what Oscar can do on a, uh, mm-hmm. on the, on a level playing field, because he's had a couple of really good years on the Hentra sleds. And obviously now he'll be on the Casey Motorsports sled this year, but you know, he was, he was just so talented and they all, they all were, they all were, that was, that was a, an awesome lineup. And I just wish we had a better sled that year to be more competitive. So. Um, you know, all these names that you've mentioned, Bruce, a lot of, lot of top tier Scandinavian riders that you've brought over. You mentioned, uh, Alina, Oscar, I can never say his last name correctly, but Nisei Kelstrom came over for you guys many years ago, like 2015 or something like that. He raced for you guys. It's a big part of your program to bring over international guys from Scandinavia. You've also brought a lot of guys down from, from Canada, Scotty Vanderborn, Cynthia Prefontaine was successful in the women's class. How pivotal and and what, like, what's the importance for you guys of kind of bringing over that talent from, from outside the U S frankly, and giving those guys a a shot here to race. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Nisa was super talented. I mean, he was, he, he can't, I think he, he rode for, I think, four, four different years in, in Duluth. And then he actually, he stayed for like a month one year, him and Emil Sundvinson. Mm-hmm. And they came out east and ran the opening round of the East, east Coast race too that year. And Emil ended up winning the Pro Light final, which was pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, Nisa was so much fun to watch. And he had a lot of success on, on Cat in this, in, at ISOC afterwards with riding with, I think it was Woody's Racing mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, he was, he was, he was a, an awesome talent, but no, I mean, it's really important, you know, cause the, the, uh, the, you know, the pool of riders to pull from over here, especially out East has shrunk a little bit in recent years and, and just trying to be diversity diverse, you know, just 
just trying to, you know, it, it's always, you know, we would always joke. It's always fun when you can show up with somebody who, no, you know, nobody can pronounce their name and then mm -hmm. go out there and get on the podium. It's like, who is this guy or girl? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so that was, that was always kind of like an added, like an added thing. You know, it started back in, I think the first year we did it was like, was the 2008 season we had had Robert Graber who came down from Alaska. Um, Polaris was trying to find a spot for him at the nationals and couldn't find a trailer for him. So he came out East and ran, ran semi pro. And then we brought in uh, Tomohuru Yamamichi from, from uh, Japan that winter for the season. And then later in the year, we had a couple of Swedes come over for a couple of rounds. And that was kind of like the kickoff to, that was kind of like the door opening and, and them coming. Cause you know, we talked about it briefly. Like I, I spent a lot of time in the sport class and, um, and a lot of it was just because, you know, you know, our contract, our main thing was to develop riders and, and, you know, our focus was, you know, semi pro slash pro light. And then, yeah, some of the amateur classes and then Holton's focus was always, you know, pro pro. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and usually we would have three semi pro riders and I, I never wanted to take one of those seats, you know, cause I, I didn't have the time to train during the week. You know, I, you know, I didn't have a, didn't have a groomer at home, didn't have a practice track at home. You know, I was working full time. I, you know, I worked full time at the shop from, you know, like age 14 on basically as soon as I could take the school bus there, I was going there after work and working and then college afterwards. I just, I didn't, I didn't have the time to put in like a lot of these kids, you know, whether it was Montana Jess or Jake De Silva or the Pat Node brothers, Lincoln Lemieux. I raced against all these guys through the years, Corn Todd. And um, I just didn't have the time to put in. And so, and, you know, like I said before, it was never Gasparti Motorsports. It was Team Southside. And so I felt that I could better serve the the team staying in sport class. And, and so that's what I did. I, I, I raced sport class. And then I would, I'd take pictures all weekend of everyone. And, you know, I'd take 4,000 pictures a weekend. I would do write-ups after the races and that's that's kind of what i did where if i ran semi-pro that was one less person we could give a ride to and then i couldn't take pictures of that class and then mm -hmm. i really couldn't take pictures of pro because it was right after pro light so i didn't i wouldn't have time to grab the camera so then i wouldn't have any pictures of either the premier classes for the weekend so you know these were all the things going through my head the whole time i'm like what to what, what do i want to race so you know racing sport class, you know, we had three sport classes out here. And then, um, you know, I would run when I was young, I'd run the junior classes and the sport classes. So I'd be running five, six classes a weekend. And then when I got older, I was running the sport classes and the plus 25 classes. So I had five classes to race. So I was just pumped with all the track time and, and being competitive and, and not having to train and eat good 24 seven, like the other guys. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and I was content, you know, I, you know, it, you know, I raced pro light a few times here and there if the track was cool or whatever, but it just never was, you know, that wasn't, it was never really my speed. And I never, I never had the time to really invest in it to try to make it my speed. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was content letting, finding the, finding the guys to give them the opportunity to, to do something and, and have fun and, and be a team. So yeah, it was 07, 08 when, when we started bringing people over and, you know, I think, I think since then, I think we've had 20, I think, with, I think we had 26 Scandinavian riders come race for us over the years. 
and then like quad racing we've had them we had them from germany england bulgaria south africa argentina and switzerland oh. so we had we had a ton of quad guys come and come and live with us from all over and then yeah we've had swedes norwegians Finns, canadians and then tomo from japan um and then we yeah like you said scotty vanderborn from canada johnny o'malley lucas brunel from canada mm-hmm. yeah forgot about lucas so, yeah yeah lucas ran for us a couple different times his dad was just the epic you know mechanic and tuner mm-hmm. he could just make anything go fast mm-hmm. so you know and that was that was nice too to be a, have him part of the team because you know my dad's a shock guru you know he ever since he kind of learned how to do shocks in the 90s when jack struthers taught him how to do it he was always kind of a shock guy and but running running cell side six days a week he didn't really have the time to bring sleds home and be testing clutching and doing this and that so you know to have somebody like lucas brunel's dad or you know we had um brad davis's dad bob for a few years i mean those guys were just all though they you know that was their like bread and butter mm-hmm. so to have those guys be under be in the trailer with us it just really helped kind of complete this the package you know of dad with the suspension stuff then with the with the clutching stuff it all just worked really well it seems you know, you guys have been working at it for a long time and, and Warner's done it. Warner Racing's done it for a long time. But having this like global mindset for racing, like not this myopic view of that the talent is only in the Midwest. Like as soon as you open up your borders a little bit, you find a really a lot of really fast people. It's become very popular for a lot of teams the last five to ten years. Like it seems every single year there's a new guy in the series that you've never heard of who is just stupid fast. Like I, I still remember the first year when I saw um, Aki Palaya's name on the boss racing press release. I was like, who's, who's this guy? I've never heard of him in my life. And he turns out to be one of the fastest guys in the world. Like that's kind of what we've grown to expect in the sport now is yeah, there'll be somebody new that we've never heard of, but somebody knows how fast they are. It's just not me. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I remember that. Cause I had, um, in 2014, we had, um, I had a rider get hurt. So I brought, I, I called my friends up in, in Sweden. I'm like, you got any, any pro women's girls that want to come over for a couple of months and do some racing. Mm-hmm. And, um, we roped in, uh, Elvira Lind to come over and cause she was racing for a player's team over there. So she came over here and lived with us for a couple of months and raced. And then I, um, at the end of that 2014 season, I followed them home and went up to Elsbyn, Sweden for the, the Swedish championship. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was the first time I kind of got to see any of those people race in, in person. And that was my, the first time I ever got to see Elias Ishul race. Oh, okay. And, uh, he was racing the pro stock class at that time. And his sled had, you know, his sled was held together with ratchet, ratchet straps. <laughs> I mean, it had like four ratchet straps holding the hood and side panels on, had ratchet strap holding the seat on. I mean, it was just like, it was held together with, ratchet strap <laughs> and he goes out there and he wins the pro stock final and wins the championship and it's like who is this guy and so that night i actually got to sit down and, and chat with him through an interpreter because he didn't speak any english at that point because mm-hmm. he's basically still a kid at that point not that he's very old now um and uh it was it was so cool and then i um i remember telling we're telling Rager, like, you know, we need to find a way to get this guy in a Polaris because if he comes over here on a ski he's going to kick her ass. And 
you know, that's kind of what happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I remember, I remember same thing. I remember seeing the, uh, the press release for, for boss and, and occupy his name being on it for, for pro light. And I remember telling my, having my dad call Rager and I'm like, you tell Rager if Aki, if they let Aki race pro light, he's going to win that championship. He is a pro open rider. Do not let him race pro light. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't know what power had Tom had to protest him out of pro light, but he ran pro light and he won the championship that mm-hmm. year. <laughs> pretty, pretty <laughs> dominant like, oh, fashion too. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. He started in Duluth and just never stopped. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, Oh my God, this is painful to watch. And as a Polaris guy, it's painful. To watch. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, there is, there's just so, so much talent over there. And, you know, like I said, you know, I've had over 20, over 20 of them come over and race for me over the race for us over the years. And every one of them is just, just good people, mm-hmm. kind hearted, happy to be here, you know, just, yeah, just good people. And it's, um, yeah, no, it's just, they're a really good fit. And, and, you know, like I said, it's, just, it's fun to bring somebody over that nobody's ever heard of and have them do good. You know, just, it's just a little salt, extra salt in the wound kind of thing. <laughs> you know, you know, like, oh, you know, you know, you go into the season oh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a top three, top four guy. And, you know, I'm going to be battling these guys. And then this random guy shows up at the first race and, and then he's battling with you. And it's like, oh my God, who is this person? You know, so no, we did. We had a lot of, a lot of good riders over the years come here and, and ride and, yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a really good time with all of them. Well, it's, it's continued to be a big part of your program, Bruce, because I mean, you spent pretty much this whole winter just living in Sweden. Like what, what were you doing over there? What, what prompted it? What were you trying to get accomplished? <laughs> I don't really know. It, um, it, it just happened. It, uh, I, I had gone over a lot. I know I haven't, I hadn't raced in six years. I think the last, the last season I actually did a race was I think the end of the 2018 season. I did one race. Mm-hmm. I did, I did Lake Geneva. Mm-hmm. I didn't race that whole season, but I, I wanted to run Geneva cause I loved, I grew up on mountain tracks. So I mm-hmm. wanted to race Geneva. So I went out there and I raced on one of the practice sleds and that was a blast, but that was, but I, I didn't race all that year and I didn't race at all after that. So, I mean, it was definitely a shock to the system, you know, it was about 30 pounds too heavy and, <laughs> not in riding shape but uh no i i so i went over went over last summer for a couple of weeks for vacation and it was, the, it was the first year i could go over there because of covid mm-hmm. so it had been a couple of years since i'd been there and um one of the, my friends was looking for a mechanic and it's like well you know I'd, I'd i'd be down to come over and, and do some wrenching it'd be pretty cool and, and it's like well if you come you know if i come over then i could do some racing while i'm here it's like well yeah i guess if i'm going to come all the way to sweden i guess i'm going to race <laughs> So, so then it kind of snowballed into that and, um, we threw some, threw a couple of sleds in the, in a container and shipped them over there. And, um, I showed up on like the Wednesday before the first race with zero seat time, zero seat time. And, and I mean, the last sled I had raced was an 18, so I'd never been on a 137. I had never been on a fuel injected race sled. (laughs) So it was, it was. It was two new things and I'd never, and I'd, and I'd never raced without studs because they don't oh, yep. race with studs over there. Mm-hmm. So that was a, that was a real shock to the system. Um, I really missed my woody studs over there. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I show up Wednesday, the content, the sleds show up Thursday. I put them together. We put them together Thursday night till like, you know, midnight, load them in the trailer, get up early Friday morning. And I had to drive 
Luckily, the, the first race was literally in the same town as the player's headquarters, which is Ostersund, Sweden, because obviously they run a different fuel over there because leaded, leaded race fuel is illegal. You can't mm. race it. You, needed an, you need an unleaded race fuel. So I, had, I couldn't even fire the sleds up. I had to bring the ECUs to Polaris and have them remapped before I could even fire the sleds up. So I built them. We did all the stuff to them. We wrapped them. They looked sick, but we couldn't even fire them up. <laughs> until we drove four hours and got ECUs remapped. So we fire them, we finally get to fire them up Friday afternoon. And it's like, yep, they run, thank God. And then the race was Saturday, Saturday morning and Sunday. And um, yeah, and then, it, yeah, I ended up, I, I was supposed to just stay for three months and cause that your normal visa is 90 days as a visitor. And um, which was gonna be the most, most, it was gonna be the whole Swedish season. So I, that, that was fine with me. And I, I kind of figured I'd be ready to go home after 90 days. So it didn't really bother me that I was going to be up. But um, so I raced, we raced the Articat Cup, which was, it's a non-points kind of like exhibition race. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like the kickoff to the whole season over there. And um, raced that, didn't really have any expectations because there was no sport class there. So I had to run pro stock, <laughs> you know, six, six years out of the sport, 30 pounds too heavy, new sled, no stud, no, no practice. I wasn't really expecting a whole lot. So that was a tough weekend, but it was, it was nice to get it behind me. And then, um, the following, then we had, I had two weekends off. We had a weekend off in between, which was sick because they have this race over there called the race of champions. Okay. And it's this, um, time trial race event for rally cars and side by side. And they brought in and it was up in Northern Sweden uh on an ice course and you know pastrana was there tanner faust sebastian vettel mick schumacher jamie chadwick you know all of these just ridiculously fast human beings Mm -hmm. so i got to go i got myself a press pass and i i went and took pictures and and did a write-up for ridex 365 while i was there and that was one of the coolest races i've ever seen in my life um probably should have practiced that weekend but i really wanted to go see that Nah, overrated. Um, yeah, yeah, right. And um, so then the following weekend we had round one of Super League, which is kind of like it's kind of like Europe's ISOC series, you could say. You know, they have races in in different countries, and it's kind of the best of the best. So we we drove up to Bowden for I I went up to Bowden for that the opening round of that, and really didn't know what to expect because there was no sport class in in Ostersund. So I didn't really know what the sport level of talent was going to be in Bowdoin. And, um, you know, over there they do, you know, you get like a five minute practice. And then immediately after that, you get five minutes, you get like a five minute qualifying to throw down a best lap. And then that kind of set your pick for your one qualifier. And then you either went to the LCQ or you went to the final. And, uh, I think I qualified like ninth out of like 15. So I, but I, I've never been very good at putting down a good lap for whatever reason. I just, it's hard to go fast for no, you know, no reason. It's just weird. I don't know why. So qualified ninth ended up with like, um, I think I ended up with a fifth in the qualifier. So it got me on the, got me like ninth pick on the front row. And it was pretty cool because the, the track was phenomenal. Super League did an amazing job building it. It was in, it was actually on a, in a soccer stadium. Oh, that's cool. Was, yeah, so you know, you know, racing under the lights, you know, they had a Joker lane, which was awesome, and um, it was, it was, it was pumped. So I had ninth pick, so I was all, you know, basically all the way outside, and I got squeezed horrible. 
I think I went over the line in like 15th and um, ended up making my way back up to third and getting on the box. So I was super thrilled with that because I definitely did not see that coming. And not to mention the, you know, the shocks were just, it was negative 25 Celsius there. So, I mean, it was, it was brisk all weekend mm -hmm. and um, the track was just, a, it was very, it was very, the track was very hard and obviously we don't have studs, so we're not breaking it up at all. So it just stayed hard all weekend. <clears throat> and I had my, I had the, all my clickers as soft as they would go. And the, and the sled was still just rock solid. And my dad had softened the valving up before I went over there because we knew out of the box, it was going to be too stiff. We had to do something. So we, we did something, but it just wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. But I ended up, I ended up getting on the box, which was really cool. And then I, they had roped me in to do some, some broadcasting on their live stream over there. Cause they wanted to do the live stream in English. So I did that, which was a ton of fun. And then I, I raced the first round of the Swedish championship in, in their version of the sport class and ended up first, which was really cool. Um, so that was kind of the start to the season. And then the following weekend, we went to uh, another exhibition race down in Svartness, which is kind of like, as far as the snow cross area is concerned, it was the Southern, the Southern portion, mm -hmm. which is you put you like three hours North of Stockholm. And it was a, it was a super fun track. We had practiced, we had trained there a few times previous. So I kind of knew the track and whatnot, but the bummer was is there was only one men's adult class. So I was, there was like, I don't know, 20 of us. We were like three heats of seven and two heats, of seven and heat of six. And there's a lot of fast guys. I mean, Adam Renheim, I was on the line with Adam Renheim. Like, what am I doing? I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? Like I'm next to Adam Renheim. Like why, what is happening? And, um, and the track was a sheet of ice. And so I was not feeling it at all. And, um, my friend had brought, brought along her friend, which, who was Ida Roselle and she had a Lynx and we had met the night before and hung out and she came to the race with us. And it was like a three moto format. <clears throat> and in her second moto, she had, she, the Lynx broke hmm. and it was not fixable. It was, you, you know, you were done for the, you were done for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there was payout at this race. You know, there's not usually payout in, in Scandinavia. It's kind of a, it's just not a thing, but there was payout and it was like, I don't know, it was, it was either, I think it was 500 bucks to win or a thousand bucks to win. And they paid top three and she had gotten third the first two times. So I'm like, well, if you want to take my sled, I'm done for the day. <laughs> I don't like this track. I don't want to race Adam Renheim anymore. If you want to race my sled? Go ahead. So she went out with it, you know, no practice, no nothing goes out, finishes third again get and gets the $300 payday and really liked the sled. And so we were, we were loading the links up into the trailer and I'm looking at it and I'm like, you know, there's, there's no way this sled is going to get fixed. So the next, the next race was next weekend for points. And it was two and it was rounds two and three Saturday and Sunday. And I'm looking at the links and there's like, there's no way she's getting parts and getting this thing back together in four days. It's not going to happen. So I told her, I'm like, if you want to race my sled, next weekend you're more than welcome to it's no problem so she did she we went to orsa which was round two at henrik mace's track which was a, a really fun track and then sunday we went an hour and a half to a different track and walks in Dahlen and raced there and she got she got sixth out of like 12 both days with no no time no seat time on it so which is where she finished on the links at the at, up in Bowden. So she didn't lose anything by switching to the players. So we had three weeks off after that 
to which because um, the world championship this year was supposed to be in Turkey. Mm. And um, so they they had to kind of give it a wide buffer because they had to give riders time to get there and then riders give them time to get back home because it's, you know, if you're driving there from Sweden, you're talking like 44, 45 hours. Mm -hmm. So, but it ended up getting canceled. Well, well, postponed and moved because you had all those devastating earthquakes in early February that, you know, flattened everything. So they, they moved it from Turkey and ended up being in Norway in April, but nonetheless, it gave us three weeks to do some, to do a lot of practicing and for, for me to get a lot of seed time and Ida had her own track up in Soleftia where she's from. So that weekend I drove up there with my sled and she had gotten the links fixed. So we rode together all day long. And then at the end of the day, and I, I kind of, I dialed in my sled the best I could with the shot, with the suspension. I wanted to make it as good as possible because we put softer springs on it. I did a little bit of revalving, really got it. So it, it sucked up the stuff way better because a lot of the tracks over there, the, 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 the trending pattern was rock hard. <laughs> and um, so I, it needed to be soft and, and the rebound and the rear needed to be slow. So when you, when you caught the top of something, it didn't want to just throw you over the handlebars every time. So I worked on it all day. And then at the end of the day, she asked if she could try it. And so I hopped on, I hopped on the links, which I had never rode before. And she hopped on the, the Polaris and she did like a half a lap and just gave me these two big thumbs up. Like this thing's awesome. <laughs> and so that night we were eating dinner. I'm like, you know, if you want to race this thing the rest of the season, you're more than welcome to like, I'm me running the sport class up there. I'm not using it a whole lot. You know, it was a new 23. I'm not using it a whole lot. And my whole team mentality it's like, yeah, hey, if you want to race it, let's let's do it. So she she made the decision. She we fixed her links and sold it, and she raced my Polaris the rest of the season. So you know we we had a couple. You know when she when she rode it in rounds two and three, she was fin finished sixth, and her best lap was like two seconds off of the two seconds best lap the best lap off the girls in front of her, like mm. three, four, and five, which was like. Wilma Johnson, Davina, Bachtemann, and uh, Ellen Bach. And um, when she was on her links at the beginning of the season, she was about two seconds off of them, best lap to best lap. So she was, you know, even to even as mm -hmm. far as she didn't lose anything when she made the switch. So we rode a ton those three weeks we had off and we go to the next race and she ends up beating one of them and she ends up being like a half second off of their best laps. So we in, in those three weeks, we found a second and a half. Hmm. So that was, that was huge. It was awesome. You know, we did a ton of, she has, she has a nice practice track at home with a groomer there, which is actually Christian Salmark's old groomer oh, okay. who used to race here in the States mm -hmm. and it, you know, his name's still on the windshield. And so I, I showed up to her house the first time. I'm like, I know whose groomer this is because <laughs> he actually, he raced for, he raced for, Holden, I was going to say, he's, he, he, yeah, he was, he was a Holton guy. He yeah. came over with Warner, but then he raced, uh, he was number six yeah. with Holton for, uh, for yes. a little while. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. So she has his old groomer. Oh, that's great. And uh, so we, you know, we, we you know, and she, her, her track, you know, you know, a lap time for me or hers, you know, low forty seconds. So I mean, it's a good sized track. But we did in those three and a half weeks, we, you know, she found a second and a half, which was awesome. And then we, um, my dad flew over after that, and we went and uh, we all drew up to Finland together for the next for the the last two rounds of Super League up in Ulu. Cause my dad, my dad had wanted to come over and see, see a race. And I'm like, well, Ulu is the one to come to. It's going to be a shitty drive cause it's far away, mm -hmm. but it, um, 
it'll be awesome because I'm doing a lot of racing. Eat is doing a lot of racing and they wanted me to do the live stream, the live stream broadcasting again. So now I'm going to, I'm not going to have any time to work on the snowmobile. And now I have two people driving it. So, and it, you know, the super league tracks are just awesome. I mean, they just build a really, really good track. You know, Katu, Katu flew over the year before with Malene and did, did and raced in Ulu where we were going. And yeah, it is. It's just an awesome track, awesome venue. And so dad flew over, came up to Ida's. We all got in the, we all got in the car together. And then from Ida's house to Ulu, it was like 11 hours. Oh. Yeah. And I mean, and that was after dad drove like six hours from the airport. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so we, we get up there and, um, you know, they, they had, they had made the decision to run the, the pro program in the morning because they, you know, their live stream thing is their big thing as far as viewers. And they did not have lights there like they did in Bowdoin. Mm. So that the priority was is, is having good lighting for the pro program. So Ida was going to race in the morning in pro women's and then obviously pro open, pro stock. And then I, so I was going to be doing the live, the broadcasting for all the pro classes. And then in the afternoon, I'd get on my, get on the sled and race the sport class. So, you know, she, she did her qualifying and she did her qualifying and then I had to go out for my qualifying before her or her before, well, she did her qualifying in her round and her, and her race, her, her, her round one. And then I had to go out for qualifying. And so I suit up quick and, and go out and, um, it was the same thing, you know, five minutes of practice, five minutes of qualifying back to back. And, you know, so dad's down there with me and I go out and I'm, I'm just kind of moseying around the track. I'm just not going fast at all. And then, you know, I see the green flag come out. So I, I go a little faster and I turn this, I turn a lap and I wheel in. And I'm like, how did I look? How did, what's my time? And dad's like, you started. <laughs> He's like, I was looking for you to like wick it up. I'm like, I thought I did. So he pulls out the phone, you know, with speed hive and I'm like 15th out of 17. It's like, okay, well, I guess I didn't wick it up. <laughs> so I go back out and I, I, you know, I end up like, I don't know, ninth or eighth or ninth, something like that. And, um, and he's like, all right, well, let's go out, go out and do one more, you know, do, you know, turn, try to do one more quick one. So I go to go out and I'm, and I, I come up over the back stretch and I land off this big table and I hit, I hit the only rock on the track and it bent my A-arm, bent the, folded my A-arm and ripped the carbide out from under my ski and turned, bent, bent my nice Woody's shaper bar into a 90 degree angle. I'm like, oh my God. So I wheel in and I'm just, I'm just pointing down at it and he sees it. And I just see the look on his face, like son of a bitch. Like, cause now, you know, I'm supposed to go back to the, to the announcing booth. Eat is up in like 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And now we've got a bent a arm and a, and a carbide. We got to change out. So we do that. We, so we're hurrying up to do that, do that. And then, so Ida can go out and race and she ends up, she ends up, uh, where'd she get? She got a good start, but then she faded and ended up like seventh. But she ran up front for like, I don't know, four or five laps. She was sitting like two, three, which was really, really cool. And same thing, lap time was, you know, within a half second of those girls that we were kind of worried about. So and then um, and then it was time for my my qualifier, which I think I finished third, put me on the front row, and then I ended up jumping the start. And over there, if you jump the start, you've got to go back row unplug your tether and hold it in your hand what until yeah yeah it's, it's quite the punishment over there <laughs> that's brutal so yeah so 
so I, you know, I obviously got out horrible and, uh, I made my way up to seventh pretty quick. And then I, I, I had burnt myself out far too fast and faded back to like 10th. So that was disappointing. So then Sunday rolls around and, um, Ida has another good day in qualifying. Um, I end up winning my, I win my heat and then she goes out and she ends up same thing. You know, she got a really good start in the final ran up front for a little bit and then ended up in the top five, which was awesome. And then I ended up, uh, I ended up getting a sport final hole shot led for like a lap, got passed, kind of fell into third, felt comfy because the, the races over there were like, the final was like a 10 minute final, which was a lot for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause I still wasn't, still wasn't in race shape. You know, I was getting there, but I still was not there. And, um, so, I ended up, uh, the leader, leader ends up, uh, the second place guy ends up taking out the leader. So I ended up finishing second. So all in all, it was a, it was a solid weekend for us and whatnot. And for my dad to be there, it was super cool. And then, uh, so then the, the following weekend we go to Elsbin for the championship and, um, the points were super tight in the pro women's class with Ida, Ellen Bach and Wilma Johnson. They were all just, you know, single digits apart from each other. And so you know, the first four races of the season, the max points you can get, you know, if you win the final, you get, if you win the overall, you get 25 points. Well, for, for Elsbin for the, for the final round, you got 25 points for each moto. So, you know, a good day was a really good day. A bad day was a disaster. So it kind of put a lot of pressure on each moto because the amount of points you could get. Um, So she went out and she, she had a, she finished fourth in the first one, sixth in the second one. And then, um, the last one, she was in fifth and we were keeping an, I was keeping an eye on the girl, the two girls in front of her and the girl behind her. And if, if fourth had passed, had passed for third, or if Ida had lost a spot, we would have went from fifth in points to seventh in points. But instead we, she she held off Davina Bachtman for the whole ten minutes plus two laps, and finished fifth. Got fifth for the for the Swedish Championship for the year, which was really really good. So and then we, um, and so then it was the point of where I was supposed to go home, but she had she had gotten an invite from Swevemo to run to rep, be one of the ones representing Sweden up at the World Championships up in Kirkenes, Norway, mm-hmm. which was at the very, very top of Norway. You could go, you can go no, basically no further on land in Norway. And we were like eight minutes from the Russian border. Mm-hmm. It was like a 17 hour drive from, from the house. And so I put in for a visa extension to let me stay another, another 90 days so that I could go to the world championship. So we, we went up there. It was really cool. I got, to, uh, you know, Cole, Cole Katu was there cause he was there with Maylene. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, well, Jake DeSilva was up there because obviously he was Maylene's mechanic. Yep. And so it was, and uh, Brad Tatro was there. So it was kind of fun to see, yep. <laughs> see you know, some of my ECS folk <laughs> yep. in the middle of nowhere, Norway. Um, so that was really cool. So, um, you know, we qualified, she qualified seventh, she qualified seventh on, on Friday. And then, uh, or sorry, she qualified ninth on Friday. And then we ended up going, um, she ended up going six, six for a fifth overall. So we, she got fifth, fifth in the world for the world championship. So that was super cool. And then 
the uh, the next day the the local the local snowmobile club was putting on a race at the same track, which I kind of forgot. Joe Duncan flew over. Oh, he used to run WSA of course, racing. Right? Of and course. Game. <laughs> he he flew. He was there, and he was in the groomer all week, and he built the track. Oh man. So it was, I mean, it was a fun track. It was, a, you know, the, the, the backstretch rhythm section was awesome. It was super cool. And then uh, Riley Bester and Adam Peterson flew over and I had mm-hmm. found some extra Polaris's for them to use so they could race up there. And Adam, unfortunately, got hurt before racing started. And then um, and then Riley had wrecked in, in practice in the morning, but decided to still suit up and race. And he ended up sled had some sled runnability issues. He ate a bunch of roost because it wasn't, you know, this, I, you know, obviously these sleds weren't up to the same, the same level of what they're used to Mm -hmm. running out of Levi's trailer when I was borrowing them from other people. So the, you know, there was a lot of gaps around the, around the headlight area. So it was letting a lot of water in and started sucking in water. Mm -hmm. So he had to pull off in the first moto, but the, in the second one, he got out good and and stayed kind of up by the front and ended up finishing seventh so it was a it was a really good really good ride for him um but yeah so sunday they had some race in there so i signed up for semi-pro and raced that and i ended up getting second second overall behind maylene Hmm. so that was kind of cool um so yeah no it was it was it was the the whole trip the whole winter the way everything snowballed and changed and it was it was so much fun so much fun and then it even we raced last month. We raced, we raced June 8th. We flew to Austria and oh. raced in the Alps. Really? Yeah. There was this invitational only race for, they had a pro open class and they had a pro women's class and Ida, and Ida got invited for the pro women's class. And then they wanted me to go be the, the announcer for the live stream. And so we, uh, we flew, st- they, they trucked the sled down. We brought it to a local dealership. They picked it up. And took you know our sled, John Stenberg's, and a bunch of the guys' sleds down there, and then we flew into Munich, and then rented a car and drove into the Alps. And it was it was at the top of this mountain, still had plenty of snow. It was a sick track, in the middle in early June, you know, fifty degrees out and partly sunny, and uh, she ended up finishing with a a second, a third, a second, and a first in qualifying, and then a second in the final. And then I got to turn some laps and before practice started on the sled and it, it was, but it was, it was sick. I'd never raced a snowmobile in June before on white snow. It was, it was the coolest thing ever. If, if people get a chance, they need to watch, go back and watch the live stream because it was an awesome, it was the coolest thing. I mean, we were at like 6,500 feet of elevation. It was just, it was sick. So so you know, you say you you say you're already looking forward to winter. Well, winter just ended just for me ended. Like a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, if I take, I could take two things from your entire experience there. One, sport is still really strong up there. There's a lot of talent, and it's going to continue to to grow and be strong. And two, there will come a point in time in your life when your grandkids will ask about your racing career, and you can say. Yeah, I lined up with Adam Renheim one time. It's it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that was that was something. But uh, but yeah, I'm I'm planning on going. Uh, the plan is I'm I'm flying back over in October. I'm going to do it all over again. Jeez, that's that's my plan. Brutal. It's um, it's cool, but it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot <laughs> gnarly. Yeah, you know it's um you know the the Polaris um. 
there's not a whole lot of players over there. Like mm-hmm. we'd go to a race and if there was a, you know, over there, you're only allowed to run one class per weekend. You know, you can't, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like here where you can sign up for sport and plus 25 and this and that there's, you can sign up for one class. So when you, when you look at the amount of entries and there's usually 125 or 150 entries, there's literally 125 or 150 riders there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was kind of the average was, you know, between 125, 150 racers at each race. But we'd go there and there'd be like eight Polaris entries mm-hmm. out of 150. You know, we had, you know, there's one in one in pro stock. There's three in pro women's. There's, you know, me in the sport class, one in the juniors, and that's it. And then there's like five Articats. Well, there's more Articats because of the junior classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, you know, 87, 88% of the entries is BRP. You know, okay. it's either a Lynx or a Skidoo, mm-hmm. but it's BRP. So I've been working with players of Scandinavia and I'm putting together a race team to, to race over there this winter on Polaris's and I'm going to be kind of the race coordinator for Polaris over there. I'm working on, I'm getting a trailer set up and I'm going to be trackside support for Polaris at all the races we go to for the Swedish, the Swedish championship and for super league and wherever else we end up going, mm-hmm. I will have a trailer full of parts for anybody on a Polaris and then I'll have my my team of a few riders that I'm working on putting together. That's awesome. That's it's great to hear that there's continued efforts from a fact like you know factory trickling down efforts that are going to be trying to grow the the Polaris presence over there. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, I mean, cause we, we need it, you know, you, you know, because there's, you know, with all of those Skidoo and BRP guy, you know, and Lynx guys, they have such a pipeline of talent to bring over the next Elias. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're all on skidoos and lynxes, you know, it's like, you know, when we, when we need somebody, when, you know, when cam finally hangs it up or Norum or whatever, it's like, who's that next guy up. Mm-hmm. And we look over there and there's nobody on a Polaris. So anybody you bring over here, it's going to be a huge learning curve because they spent the last, they spent their entire career on a BRP product. Mm-hmm. So I really want to, you know, it's kind of like a, basically at this point now a three to five year plan of kind of like reopening up this, the, 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 the Polaris pipeline of talent from, from Europe, because mm-hmm. right now, you know, we don't really have anything over there. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't have anybody to bring over on that's been on a Polaris that knows a Polaris that can ride at a high level. We don't have it. Mm-hmm. So I really, I want to change that because, you know, we, we, you know, there, there, we have some good talent here in sport and pro light. I mean, Riley Bester is a phenomenal talent, you know, and, you know, whether or not he moves up this season or he stays one more year in pro light, but you know, there's not, you, you can't just rely on just that pool of talent. You mm-hmm. need to, you need to have other avenues and options. And right now we don't. So, um, you know, this, this plan with this team and whatnot, as I'm going to try very hard to change that. I mean, you look at the like top five for pro this year at ISOC, I think what Cody's the only He's the only American there. It's it's all Scandinavian guys or or Francis who's from Quebec. There's it's definitely it's becoming and and frankly I don't have a problem with it. I don't care. I I like the racing. It's really competitive. I don't care. But it's definitely noticeable that at least here in the US we're there's definitely a gap between the fast guys primarily being being foreigners and we're kind of 
lagging behind a little bit right now. We've had our windows or we've had the fastest guys, no problem. But right now it's yeah, we, had, we had Tucker. We had Tucker for 15 years. Yeah, you know, like we've we had our time. It's completely okay. But it's definitely noticeable right now that and, and you go down all the other classes too. I mean, it's definitely noticeable that the Americans are are lacking a little bit right now. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, there is, you know, they, they get to ride a lot over there, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, they'll be riding in November and, you know, there's, there's right, you know, we were practicing in Sweden, you know, we were practicing in Sweden in May, mm-hmm. we were still riding sleds in Sweden. You know, we, we, we were practicing before we went to Austria. So, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of seat time that, you know, the guys over here don't get. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, so, I mean, that, that makes a, when you're, when you're at that level that, you know, that extra month or two months of seat time makes a big difference as far as being comfortable on that snowmobile. So yeah, you know, the, the goal of trying to reopen this pipeline to, to have those people in the next, you know, next three to five years that can come over here and, and fill that, fill cam seat, fill, you know, Norm seat or Peterson or whoever, you know, if they hang it up or they get, even they get hurt, you know. I mean, we look at look at this winter with henches. You know, Oscar goes down week one, mm-hmm. done for the year, and you know they bring you know they bring over John Malstrom, who's a talented rider, but he's been on ski doo. Mm-hmm. So I mean, he he's coming over here. You know, our tracks are different. We've got studs, and now he's got to transition from riding a ski doo for the last however many years to riding a Polaris and going really fast. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't, you know, and he had a lot of trouble with it, and that's but we, they had no other options. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like five, six, seven years ago when you, you know, you look at the, you know, the, the pro line in in Sweden or, or Finland and you got five, six players on the line. Mm -hmm. We had one this year, Yeah, (laughs) you know, so it's, it makes it really tough. makes it really, really tough. Um, You know, we, we saw what somebody could do when they came over and they were comfortable on their sled, you know, like, you know, Salston came over a few times for, for green mountain and he was competitive mm-hmm. but he was a i mean he was he was just on another planet this season i mean he won almost every time he went out over and over in europe mm-hmm. but he was going from a skidoo to a skidoo mm-hmm. makes a big difference and then you know you had like uh, martin johannesson came over and albin lundquist came over and ran ran pro light and same thing you know going skidoo to skidoo it, it makes that transition a lot easier than when you're trying to make somebody make somebody learn a new sled and and go at that 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 pace mm-hmm. so that's that is that's my goal is to try to try to change that put some more put some more polaris on the line and 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 reopen that pipeline to start bringing more more people over here to whether whether it's a two-step program and they go they go from europe to the to out here in the east and then to the nationals or if they or if they're that dialed when they can go right from europe to you know Casey's trailer or Juddies or mine or whoever's doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's all, it's purely an effort to try to make, to try to help Polaris in the long run, as far as having good quality riders in Europe and then being able to bring them over here and be competitive. You, you mentioned there, whether they go out West immediately or, or come out East. It's a, it's a natural transition for me on this because for a long time, Rock Maple was a solid series for us in New England and on the East Coast. Transitioned into East Coast Snowcross. Summer of 2019, uh, Bob Roscoe, Eric Scott, they put the series up for sale. We're not going racing anymore. 
you guys step up huge and basically purchase whatever's left of it and create a new East Coast racing series with Eastern Snowcross. I want to know first, you know, what the hell is wrong with you guys? Who wants to buy a racing series? Just signing up for that kind of headache. But, you know, what was your what was your grand intentions with it? Like, what were you guys trying to get accomplished with the with the series? I mean, really, it was just uh, lack of a better term, placeholder. You know, mm-hmm. if if we didn't do something, nobody else was going to, and Snowcross would have died mm-hmm. out here in the east. You know, and obviously, we as as we've talked about this evening, Snowcross has been in our blood since the since the seventies, but really, I mean, since the early nineties, it's been, it's been our thing. Mm-hmm. And to, to see all, to see it all just disappear like that. We just didn't, didn't want it to happen. We know we, we did not be, want to be in the race series business. Mm-hmm. No question about it. I mean, Southside keeps us busy. We had our race team, you know, we, we were busy enough. We didn't need to, we didn't need to, to do it, but if we didn't do it, nobody else was going to. Mm-hmm. So we, it was really just trying to, try to make it better obviously you know you don't want to make it worse try to make it better but just try to try to be that placeholder until somebody else that has more time money and resources than us can you know say okay i've got it from here mm-hmm. and then run with it you know and then unfortunately obviously covid happened and that made that much more difficult mm-hmm. yeah i like i mentioned earlier my episode with uh with phil but we dive into it pretty deep on like the last 10 years or so just the the dwindling of the the top tier talent like all the all the super fast guys end up leaving like not a lot of them stick around here so every year the rider count gets smaller and smaller and these last couple years you guys have had some really fast guys in racing in the pro class but it's not it's not what it was like 2007 2008 it's it's not there you know what i mean yeah, I mean, when I, you know, when I look back to those years and, you know, whether it was, you know, 07, 08, and you had Simon Belize, you had Danny Poyer, CW Sir Jane, Darren Mees, mm-hmm. you know, you just had all these, all these guys in it. And then, you know, and then even in the, you know, 2013, 14, 15, you know, Derek Ellis coming out mm-hmm. here and Mikey Bauer, um, boy, I know I'm forgetting a lot of them. But, I mean, we had, a, we had a lot of, you know, we, oh, we had Dylan Martin come out for yep. a season, you know, yep. Ross's little brother, we had him come out. Um, so, I mean, there was a, you know, you know, you look at, you look at that, you know, and then obviously we had a plenty of homegrown talent. You had mm-hmm. P-Lot, you had Montana Jess, Lincoln Lemieux, De Silva. Um, We're taking credit for, for Jake Scott too, for going way back. Jake, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 Jake Scott, yeah. Uh, you know, so you, you did, you, you had a solid nine, 10 guys on that line every weekend in the pro class. And that was sick, mm-hmm. but that's also because the pro class at the nationals was full. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether it was cat ski to players was trying to find these good riders seats somewhere. So they'd come out East and mm-hmm. they could still make some contingency, maybe a little bit of salary, depending on who it was, this, that, and it, it, it made the sport better because it, it did it. It elevated the, the talent and the, and the whole thing out here in the East. And then once the, once the pool, the national started shrinking, well, they stopped shipping riders out here and the, the, the flow of riders reversed instead of them sending some overflow to us, they were taking our top, top talent away from us every year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it just, you know, 
it made it made it a lot more difficult to be to have that those eight, 10, 12 guys on the pro line because now, you know, those guys are, are racing at the nationals every weekend instead of instead of being with us. Because you know, you know, just you know that that funnel that pool of the nationals was getting smaller. Mm-hmm. So now they start instead of us pulling from them, they were pulling from us. So in your mind, Bruce, what does the future hold for for snowcross racing on the East Coast? What are we what are we looking out at next five to ten years? What do you think? This well, I mean, obviously, I wasn't here this past winter, but we had a, we had a team of five riders. You know, we had Corn Todd, Don Jacure. Uh, Tucker Kierstead, Ryan Dupont, and Brandon Hoyt, and uh, and we'll have those same five again coming back for us this season. And um, uh, Garrett Powell, they you know they're mm-hmm. they're running this. He's running him and someone else is running the series now. And mm-hmm. I think they had four four weekends of racing this past winter, and they're and it went good. You know, it was it was obviously it was new to him. You know, he did some he did some race directoring for us pre COVID. So he had a small idea of what was what was going on, but he's a he's a racer. His kids are racer. Mm-hmm. He he loves it. Um, so you know, I think these next three to five years, you know, I know he's got a lot of he has some venues up by him that are that want to bring us in. They got some dirt car tracks up there, some fairgrounds, which is those are the kind of places you need. You mm-hmm. either you either need a ski resort, which is tough because they don't want to give up, they don't want to turn skiers away. Yep. Um, or you need a, you need a nice dirt card track or fairgrounds where you've got bathrooms, you've got grandstands, lights, maybe mm-hmm. it makes life, it, it makes life as a series owner much, much easier. So I know this year he has some of those lined up and so the schedule is going to be bigger and, and hopefully it starts to turn around. You know, I think, you know, he has the heart to do it. And I think now with him picking up venues and hopefully Salamanca has snow this year, so the ISOC can come back out to back out to New York, and and hopefully it can start to turn back around. You know, because there's plenty of people here that want to race; they just need a place to do it. And I think Garrett's giving them that place to do it. You know, it would be really nice if ISOC could come out to to New England. You know, somewhere in New Hampshire or something like that, like they used to. Mm-hmm. That would be really cool, and I think that would help help grow, help kind of relight the fire out here too. You know, Salamanca, it's, it's not New England, it's Northeast and it's, and it's far. It's really far. Yeah it's, the, yeah, it's the Southern tier of New York. It's six hours for us mm-hmm. in Western mass, you know, for those Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine guys, you're talking, you know, 10, 12 hours, you know, spectators aren't driving that far to go watch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the chances of racers going there for a non-point driving 12 hours for a non-points race is tough. Yep. So, you know, they, if they can put something somewhere in Southern New Hampshire at a cool venue, like, you know, New Hampshire Motor Speedway mm-hmm. or Rockingham Park or something like that, A, they'd fill the stands because there's a shit ton of race fans in New England. That is for damn sure. I mean, we go to Epping every year and there's 55,000 pe- people there for a week in a grass track racing and watercraft. Mm-hmm. All those people will show up to a snowcross race. You just need to have one within a couple hours of them. Not ten hours away, so hopefully ISOC hint hint can uh, try to try to find one in New England. But no, I think the next three to five years, I think Garrett's got a solid plan of of, of attack and what he wants to do with the racing here, and I'm, I'm excited to see what he can do with it. And obviously, we will help him any way we can. So we've talked a lot of a lot of racing here, and I've already kept you way longer than I thought I was, but 
might, might have to break this into two parts. <laughs> just a, just a couple last points here because most people know Southside as you know a race team, but this may come as a shock to people. There is a dealership. They do sell snowmobiles. <laughs> they do sell outdoor power. They do you know. So there is something that actually has to keep the lights on. So yeah, couple... they got racing, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So just a couple points here. I'm curious about some more kind of industry specific stuff. So you know, I work a little bit in the in the snowmobile industry as well in my day job, and like what last couple of years have been rough. Doesn't matter what what OEM you're you're bleeding for. Last couple of years have been rough in terms of snow checks and people getting stuff and snow years, but. How has the retail space looked? I know it dropped off pretty significantly in, in Q4 last year of kind of that COVID boom, but what's retail looking like? What are, what kind of sleds are we moving? What what segments are strong? What's it looking like, Bruce? Um, so yeah, this this past past few years have been tough, to say the least. Um, you know, from you know, 2021 and 2022 stuff coming late you know, missing pieces and parts to, you know, um, you know, this past season, you know, this past year, you know, you know, for 20 snow check last March for 23 model year stuff was really good. I mean, we snow checked a ton of sleds. It was awesome. You know, the mm-hmm. boost, the boost stuff and this and that, and everybody was the nine R everybody was pumped. And, uh, you know, we started getting sleds in, in August or like, oh man, we are on track this year. People are going to be riding. We're getting sleds in. And then like September 1st rolls around and we get a, we get that huge stop sale recall for the Mm -hmm. sleds, you know, possibly spontaneously combusting. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh my God. It's like, you know, we, you know, we probably had 10 or 15 sleds in at that point. And now we can't, the customers can't pick them up. And then Polaris can't ship any more sleds to any dealer until they come up with a solution to the stop sale and then implement that solution on all the sleds at the factory they couldn't ship it they couldn't ship any of that stuff without it being done so you know that took them you know almost a month and a half two months to come up with the fix and then get it validated and then start making the kit so you know that that hurt getting new stuff and then it also hurt because you know obviously everybody had you know we had you know the recall encompassed i think two hundred and thirty thousand snowmobiles mm-hmm. so people want to get their stuff in and get the recall done because you know, we're telling them you can't ride it until the recall is done because if it, if it spontaneously combusts insurance isn't going to cover it if your if recall is not done this and that and we can't get kits you know we're having trouble you know you know obviously players is trying to get kits out to all these dealers and we can't, you know, we just can't get them fast enough. So that, that hurt. And then, you know, usually, you know, we'll get, usually by Christmas, we'll have probably 85 to 90% of our order in, in, in the building or the Mm -hmm. backyard. And this year we had like 15% of it. It was, it was, it was, it's like, Oh my God, this is gonna be horrible. So, you know, at least when the stuff was coming in, it would, the recall was done on it. It could go out the door, but it just wasn't coming in. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, now new year's comes and goes the uh, winter got off to a really slow start up here in new England. You know, we did not have really any snow. So now people's sleds that they snow checked aren't here. 
and there's no snow to ride on anyways. So people started canceling their, their snow checks. So, you know, now sleds are, sleds are coming in in February and March. And now we don't, we don't have an ass for the seat because people, you know, they, they backed out on them. Mm-hmm. So, and then obviously early March is the dealer meeting and the unveiling of the 24 stuff. And then right after that, we get like three feet of snow here. So now everybody wants a sled. So now, you know, these customers that would, were probably a snow check pre-order customer are now buying stuff off the floor because we have snow check models on the floor because people backed out of them. Mm-hmm. So now they're buying that boost or that XCR or, or MXZ or whatever color it was. They're buying it in March because they can get it. They can get their hands on it and go right at the next day. So why pre why pre-order and, you know, the 24 stuff for players at least really didn't change at all. You know, it was just, you know, some little fixes and changes, but it was really just, you know, bold new colors, mm-hmm. you know, you know, everybody was kind of hoping for the nine R to be in a short track. Um, my dad actually built one of those this, this winter with uh, Jesse James Bonadou. Yep. He, him mm-hmm. and Jesse do a lot of, do a lot of videos and whatnot. And so they, they put a nine R into a XCR 136 and they loved it. Mm-hmm. It was a six sled, but so everybody was kind of thinking we were going to see that, but with the amount of sleds that came late and the amount of stuff sitting on dealers floors, I don't know if that influenced Polaris to, okay, we're, we're, we're going to hold back the new stuff for a year because we need to dealers need to move this 23 product that came late that, that is sitting around. So, you know, that definitely, that definitely hurt our pre-order season for this coming year. And I'm sure it hurt a lot of people. Um, but you know, players, you know, we've already got probably 2025 sleds in of 24 stuff. So, I mean, it's coming, it's coming early. Things are going good. So hopefully that, hopefully that keeps trending in that direction and we get some snow this winter. Nah. Cause it doesn't, doesn't matter how good the sled is or how many of them we got. Nothing, nothing beats having snow in their yard. You know, they wake up, they see it and oh, I need a sled. I need to go ride it. I want to go ride it. You know, if they wake up and they look out and it's green grass, you know, they're, they're not thinking snowmobile. Yeah, I it was pretty, pretty similar out here in, in the Midwest. We got a, a quite a bit of snow prior to right at like the right at New Year's. We got hit with like two and a half feet of snow. It was stupid, but that was all the snow we got pretty much the whole year, you know, so we had it most of the winter. But I was trying to get my my wife her first sled and it was the market was just so bad because like you, you saw it because we had, we had snow on the ground. Nobody was selling their sleds. Anybody who was selling their sled, it was through the roof pricing. And you're like any other year, people would be throwing these things on the side of the road so fast. Like you, <laughs> you want to buy a used sled any other year? No problem. This year, the market was so bad because at least here, everybody was out riding. We had the conditions and we haven't had that in a lot at least here in the midwest I haven't had that for a long time which was very it was cool to see but you also wondered like okay what's this actually going to look like in six months how many of these people are just going to unload their sleds in the summertime and just be done with it all together you know yeah i mean i think um i think a lot of people that you know all these little these new snowmobilers i think they're gonna i think i think a fair amount of them will stick with it you know i think mm-hmm. they Cause it is a lot of fun as you and I know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, um, you know, with this COVID thing and people kind of want to be an out being make changing the mentality of wanting to be out in the, out in the woods more and out on their own and stuff. 
it's a really fun pastime. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun. So I think, I think a fair amount of them will hang around because, you know, yeah, maybe if COVID didn't happen, they would have never tried it, but they found it and I think they like it. You know, we saw that, we, we saw that a lot in the summertime with people buying side-by-sides, you know, they mm-hmm. never had one, this, that, but they want to go out, they want to go out in the woods. They want to do some, doing some of this, some of that. And yeah, they seem to really, really enjoy it. So I think um, as far as bringing new customers into the mix, I think for that reason, COVID was, was a, was a, was a good push for that. Um, but no, hopefully, hopefully uh, Polaris and, and the other manufacturers can get, get their, um, you know, their manufacturing back on track and kind of get things back in order so that we can start getting, you know, cause the hardest thing was, you know, people want to know when their sled's coming in and I can't even give them a date, you know, yeah. oh, it's, it's two weeks out. It's, it's three weeks out. It's like, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it could show up tomorrow. It could show up two months from now. I can't tell you. And that's a, that's a crappy thing to say to somebody that wants to spend, you know, 15 or $20,000. I can't tell you when it's going to be here. Mm-hmm. That's not what people want to hear. So hopefully things are getting back to the way they should be and we can be better for the customers. Last question I got for you before I let you go. News dropped a couple weeks ago. Yamaha's pulling out after 2025, model year 25. And granted, I mean, the keyboard warriors are just having a field day. <laughs> Yamaha probably sells, I don't know, six or seven thousand sleds globally if i had to guess every year it's not a huge part of the market they don't you know they're not they don't have a ton of market share but at the end of the day it is it is another brand and it's not like like i know lynx is is it is its own brand you know they they're under brp's umbrella but it's unique people working for lynx it is technically another brand but yamaha is completely standalone it is its own group them pulling out of snowmobiling altogether, what do you think that's going to do to the snowmobile market? Is it going to really impact it, or do you think Polaris and BRP primarily are just going to absorb that market share and and everybody's going to be fine? I mean, I think for I think when you're looking when you're outside and you're looking in, it definitely hurts. You know, obviously Yamaha is a big name and a lot of things they do. Um, so to not have them in the snowmobile world anymore is definitely disappointing. You know, they've been around for whatever it was, 50 plus years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to not have them there anymore is certainly disappointing. And then it, you know, it, to me, it, it, it creates a big question of, well, what's, what's next for Articat? You know, because mm-hmm. obviously they've been selling chassis to Articat or Articat's been selling them chassis for the last however many years. So, you know, that's income for Articat. And then obviously they were buying engines from Yamaha to put in their chassis. So, you know, now do they start building more of their own engines? Do they have the capacity to do that? You know, can they still make a profit not selling those chassis to Yamaha? You know, mm-hmm. is that the reason why they, you know, did Articat already know this was happening? And that's why the catalyst is only coming in a 600 this year and then 800 next year. And there's not really any talk of a four stroke in it because they saw this and now they know they either have to make their own four stroke or get out of the four stroke business. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's, that's the big question is what is this, you know, how does Textron view this in the next few years? Because obviously Textron is the one pulling all the strings at Articat. And, you know, obviously they've been making racing very tough for green riders these last Mm -hmm. couple of years and building just a few sleds, building them late, 
problems, nobody to nobody to answer the phone when they call. You know, we saw, you know, he had that boss cat team this winter, which had a lot of good riders and, you know, a, a solid team. And they were the first race and the stuff doesn't even run right and they can't get any help. And then they come to the next race and basically everybody's on yellow. Yep. You know, that's like, um, so I just, you know, my whole thing is, is what, yeah, it's, it's truly disappointing. And, you know, I'm not a Yamaha guy, obviously, but it's truly disappointing to not have them building a sled anymore. But my, the bigger question I feel like is, is what is this going to do to Textron and Articat? Can they still survive not getting four stroke engines from Yamaha? And can they still survive not selling Yamaha chassis every season? You know, obviously early talk about the catalyst has been really good. It seems like everybody seems to get on one, seems to like it. So, I mean, hopefully that helps because, you know, cat needs, needs to hit a home run here to stay in the game. They need one bad and the sled looks sick and yeah, everybody that's talks about it and rides, it seems to like it. So hopefully this is the start of something good for cat but I feel like they knew this was coming and that's why there hasn't been a whole lot of four stroke talk in the catalyst. It's always been the 600 this year, 800 next year, and not really any talk about that because I feel like they saw this coming. Yeah. And you saw, you know, when, when they unveiled that chassis at heydays, the first thing you, you know, maybe not a lot of people, but when you look at it and you saw how, how modern it was with geometry and, and really slim with the plastics and stuff like that, you're like, I can't see under those but I know a four stroke motor is not going to fit in there. So <laughs> yeah. it just every, yeah, everybody's gears were turning immediately after that. Like, well, so Yamaha is probably not going to get that platform. So what, what, you know, what, I, I don't want to say we saw the writing on the wall, but it definitely, everybody was thinking that. So it's not necessarily a surprise for everybody who works in the industry, but still kind of like, damn, that sucks. That's really a bummer for, for everybody involved. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it, like I said, it's it's cool having Yamaha in the industry and, you know, do they make a lot of sleds? No. Do they sell a lot of sleds? No, but it's nice having them in the industry. So, you know, they, they, you know, like you said, they're probably only building five or 6,000 sleds a year at most. So, you know, as far as Polaris, Skidoo, Articat, Lynx, absorbing that, I see that that's going to happen. No question. Mm-hmm. So, I don't see an issue there. It's just, it is disappointing that they are going to, to leave. And I, you know, a couple of my friends over in Sweden actually had, they were single line Yamaha dealers in Sweden. So, you know, that's, um, that definitely, I don't, I don't think there was many of those here in the States, but over there, that's definitely a bummer because they were diehard blue guys. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, they can sell this, they can sell the sled for basically, one more model year basically. And then, then they've got to find something else to sell or find something else to do. You know, it's, um, you know, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's disappointing for sure, but I don't think it's going to hurt the, I don't think it's going to hurt the sport of snowmobiling, but it's definitely disappointing. You know, um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to change gears back to Sweden just for a minute. Um, you know, one thing I, one thing I noticed this winter racing over there is how expensive it is to race over there. You know, mm-hmm. everything, you know, diesel is $9 a gallon over there. You know, everybody complains mm-hmm. over here when it's four bucks and I was paying $9 all winter long. That stung. <laughs> um, and then, you know, it, it's hard to get parts. It's hard to get accessories like CNA Pro skis or Rocks handguards and stuff like that. It's hard to get cl- clothing, whether it be Climb or FXR. It's, mm-hmm. it's just difficult, you know, so the people that are racing over there are, 
truly doing it because they love it. They're not making money doing it. They're not winning money doing it. Then they're spending way more than we are over here to race. If, if we had to spend the money they're spending, we'd quit and go do something else, you know? So, <laughs> so yep. this, so I, this, this coming year, in addition to what I'm doing with Polaris is I worked out a, I've worked out a deal with a few brands over here, uh, rocks, speed effects, Woody's traction and control products um senior pro skis and 139 designs to offer discounts to any riders over there that want help if they go to the website that i make everything i kind of did this winter for pictures and all that was bruce almighty media if they go on there they can fill out this form and then i can send them like a sponsorship packet of discounts on those products so that they can get the cool custom skis that cna makes or the hand guards that rocks makes or whatever and they can get it at a discount at a racer discount. And I'm working on a, a, trying to get a clothing brand too. So I'm, I'm doing that. And then I also want to quickly throw out there that I am looking for a, for a second pro rider or pro stock rider for over there. And, um, if there's any American rider or Canadian rider listening that is interested in racing a players in Scandinavia this winter at super league, to have them reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram or whatever floats their boat, because I am looking for somebody from over here to bring over there to race the race, the rounds at super leagues. I want to have a, I'm going to have a, a Scandinavian pro, but it would be pretty cool to, at least for the super league round to have a, a North American pro over there and represent either uh, the U S or Canada. So if there's anybody that's, got the itch to come over and race a Polaris, they should reach out. So don't usually do an open tryout like this, but if, but I don't really have any other way to, to get the word out. And if it was good enough for the Philadelphia Eagles in the seventies, I guess it's good enough for me. <laughs> I mean, frankly, that's a really cool opportunity because we rarely see it going the other direction. There's always dudes coming over here. But exactly. very, very rarely do we see guys go over there and, you know, go up against that talent. So, yeah, that's yeah, a really they, cool opportunity. Yeah, I mean, Super League is sick. You know, I, it was it was really fun working with them this winter, doing the live stream, the broadcasting with them. So I got to know them really well. And they build six sick tracks that are pretty similar to the kind of stuff we see here at ISOC and whatnot. And, you know, it's going to be a three or four country series this year. So it should be pretty fun and exciting. So if somebody wants to, somebody from over here wants to check that box on their resume or something, it could be a pretty fun opportunity for both of us. So. Awesome. Well, Bruce, I promised you an hour and I took you two hours. So I, I apologize for it, but it was some, it was some really cool stories and some really good discussions. So I, uh, I thank you so much for all the time and more importantly all the efforts that you and your family put into snowcross over the years as a as a new england guy gaspardi and snowcross are forever linked no matter what happens so i thank you for your time and i thank you for all you guys have done for the sport i really appreciate it it was nice getting to talk to you and getting to to dust off some of the old stories and stuff so it was it was it was i really enjoyed this evening it was a lot of fun i appreciate the invite absolutely absolutely Bruce Gaspardi Jr. on the Carbide Podcast. Bruce did really come armed with a ton of knowledge and stories. I hope you guys enjoyed it. He has the unique perspective of seeing snowmobiling both from the racing side, but also the retail side at the dealership level. Personally, I think a lot more race fans should try and keep tabs on what's going on with retail. 
After all, racing is directly funded by the sale of snowmobiles. Less sleds means less budget, which means less teams, less riders, the list goes on. Huge thanks again to Bruce for all his time. Be sure to follow Team Southside on socials and follow Bruce's media outlet, Bruce Almighty Media, for some really cool coverage this winter. Thanks for listening, everybody. I really appreciate it. And as always, take care.